Beloved congregation of the Lord, let us read again in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Well, as we've been working through this book of First Peter and this glorious first chapter of the epistle that that apostle wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the churches scattered throughout Asia Minor, we have come to that part where there is an especial emphasis on exhorting these Christians unto holy living. And we make no apologies for dwelling upon this theme as we have, considering last November, the war for our minds in verse 13, that calling to sanctify even the inner life of our thoughts unto God in Jesus Christ. We see Further, the character of the true Christian pursuing holiness as obedient children in verse 14. And most recently, uh, we considered this quotation from the book of Leviticus to be holy, for I am holy, the words of God unto his people. And truly be the people of the Lord is never to be at peace with sin. God is a holy God, and where he separates his church unto himself, he would have us understand this, that the calling of the gospel is a calling unto holiness. Never does God save his people from the guilt and consequences of their sin, while also having them remain in their sins. No, there is also this, that God works by his Holy Spirit, a transformation of the inner man and the entirety of life to be brought into conformity with the will and character of our God. And so as we consider the continuation of this Theme as we find it here in verse 17, we have the concept of fear. But if ye call on the Father who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. And children, I wonder if your parents have ever told you Don't be afraid. There's nothing to be afraid of. Maybe if it's late at night and you're afraid of the dark, maybe mommy and daddy comfort you with saying those sorts of things. And where we would now speak of fear as one of the characteristics of Christians, the way Christians are like, or how Christians are, we should say, that it might be confusing to you. Why does fear enter in at this point? 
Well, the fear that is spoken of is the fear of the Lord. I think we referred to the fact that Jesus himself taught in the morning service, we referred to the fact that he taught that we are to fear not them which can destroy the body, but fear him who is able to cast both body and soul into hell. You see, we're not to be afraid of the things that other people are afraid of. No, instead the controlling principle of life is the fear of the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord is not a dread and a terror where we pull back from God, where we long to be free from God. No, not at all. The fear of the Lord is that holy principle in the heart and the life where we are filled with awe and reverence and wonder at God and all of his perfections. And it's a very practical thing, the fear of the Lord. It, where present, will have dramatic consequences for your life. And where it is absent, there will be dramatic consequences. Let me just show you two uh, Proverbs where this is so. In the first place, you see in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 16, it says there, A wise man feareth and departeth from evil, but the fool rageth and is confident. The difference between having the fear of the Lord and not having it is the difference between being wise and foolish of having the spiritual um, power to depart from evil or through foolishness remaining in evil. Another proverb, Proverb 28, chapter 28, verse 14. Happy is the man that feareth alway, but he that hardeneth his heart shall fall into mischief. This is not just something that is to pass. It's to always be the case for the Christian and the alternative to being governed by the fear of the Lord. Well, the alternative is to have a heart that is hard. That is a heart that resists the will of God for your life and so fall into all kinds of sin and all kinds of problems in life. So you could... Tell me today all the problems that you're struggling with, all of the things that are worrying you. And I could sit down and try to sort out each one, one at a time. But I will tell you the one thing that can profit any one of you, no matter what you may be struggling with today, and that is that you have this, the fear of the Lord. This is that controlling principle for all of life. I'd like to open up especially how uh, our text speaks about this in the Christian life. It's a very interesting verse bringing together a number of complex thoughts. And altogether, I trust it will be edifying to reflect upon how it is that this fear characterizes the Christian. Well, we'll consider this a verse, and we'll write over the message, the God-fearing pilgrim. The God-fearing pilgrim. 
And we'll consider that in three thoughts. The Christian's relationship to the world. Second, the Christian's relationship to the judgment. And third, the Christian's relationship to God. I called this message the God-fearing pilgrim because I wished to remind you that this is a theme running through this epistle that the Christian is living a kind of pilgrim life. We are passing through on life's journey. And as we progress in this journey, we become more and more acquainted with our purpose and our calling as Christians. So in the chapter that follows, um, you have in verse 11 of chapter Two in First Peter, dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So in order to exhort the Christians to live as Christians, he reminds them what it is to be a Christian, what it is to be a pilgrim. You are on a journey unto heavenly glory. And together with that is that word stranger. Stranger, and the two words are closely related, and it's a different form of the same word that's used in our verse here in uh, chapter 1, verse 17, where it speaks of your sojourning. And I think you can boil down this concept of what it is to be a sojourner or what it is to be a stranger in this way. Some of you have lived in other countries. You lived in other countries other than the one you were born in. And when you came to that country and you became acquainted with their culture, you became acquainted with the kind of places that they go, the kind of language that they speak, you found, didn't you, it was hard. It was hard to fit in. It was hard to even get by and to live as someone who didn't really belong. And that's that's really what it's getting at. The idea is of a sojourner or a stranger is someone who is in a place where he just does not fit in because he's not from there. And so all the time that he is where he does not belong, he is going to encounter unique challenges. One of the places this comes up is in the story of Jacob, also called Israel, the patriarch Jacob. In Genesis chapter 47, you'll remember that his son Joseph has been made the prime minister of all of Egypt, and he's welcomed his family back to live with him in Egypt. And the Pharaoh, who is a good Pharaoh, he's um, helping Joseph, he asks Jacob, Joseph's father, in Genesis 47, verse 8, How old art thou? And then in verse 9, And Jacob answered unto Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are an hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have the days of the years of my life been and have not attained unto the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. Now, and J- uh, Jacob, of course, was the son of Isaac, who was the son of 
Abraham, and where he's talking about his fathers, he's saying all of his fathers were characterized by this life of being pilgrims, of being sojourners, of being called out of the place where they fit in into a place where they didn't really fit in. That was how the patriarchs lived. And I think a good summary of how it was that was worked out in their life is found when uh, the martyr Stephen reflects upon the life of the patriarchs. He, he looks at the whole history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he gives a summary of what it meant for them to have all this challenge and difficulty, living a, a hard life as sojourners in Acts chapter 7, verses 2 to 7. So if you turn to Acts chapter 7, We'll read those verses here, beginning at verse 2. So Stephen, he's been challenged by the high priest to account for his charge of heresy, which is false. And he gives this summary of the Old Testament uh, story or history. Acts chapter 7, verse 2. And he said, men, brethren, and fathers, hearken, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Charon and said unto him get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come into the land which I shall show thee then shall he out out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwell in Charon and from thence when his father was dead he removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child. And God spake of this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil 400 years, and the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. So there was a purpose of their sojourning in the land where they were residing. They were called out of Ur of the Chaldees in the days of Abraham. And they were called to live in a place where they had no permanent inheritance. And yet the promise of God is that they would inherit all of the land of Canaan. They would inherit it for their seed after them. And yet the path of that was one of suffering. It was one of anguish. It was a difficult life to separate themselves from all they had known and to trust in God to give them that inheritance in the land. Why am I telling you all this? Well, I think that Peter, in making this a point of emphasis, I believe he's drawing upon the Lord's dealings with the patriarchs in those days and drawing this parallel. We as Christians, we are living in this place where we do not belong. To really be a Christian is to feel that you don't really fit in in the age in which we live. It's an evil age characterized by sin, characterized 
by opposition to God, characterized by various temptations and attacks from the evil one, our enemy, the devil. And if you've never experienced that, if you've never felt that there is something about you that's cutting against the grain, pushing back against the tide of our, of our era, then you really have to wonder if the Lord has really worked in you. We read in the, the morning about Lot, how his righteous soul was vexed every day considering the immorality of that land of Sodom. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever felt that things are simply not right? That things ought to be governed in such a way that God is supreme. And yet everywhere you look, it seems as though there is no fear of God in the eyes of men. And even in yourself, well, what a world of sin there is to look at yourself when you see how far you fall short of even your own convictions and principles and how much you have yet to learn about the ways of God. And yet there is that in you which will not be conformed to the world, that yearning for the world to come, wherein righteousness dwells, and God will make all things right. Um, if you think I'm making too much of this, I think it might be good to compare what Peter's talking about with what the author of the epistle to the Hebrews talks about in chapter 11. Now, 11, chapter 11 of Hebrews is that wonderful hall of faith where it shows all of the great heroes of the faith under the old covenant and how it was they had the very same faith that we have under the new covenant of faith in Jesus Christ. But in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 16, there's sort of this summary picture of not only the patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but really all of those believers. And listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. And were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they shall seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned but now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. There you see it. Even when we speak of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their faith and their hope was not just in a physical land where they and their posterity could exist. No, yes, that was included in the Old Covenant, but the spiritual realities that those things pictured, well, they were a far higher and better blessing. They were yearning for heavenly glory in the world to come. And where Peter draws the same kind of language, it seems quite clear that we are to pattern ourselves after them as well. And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning 
here in fear. You have a time given unto you, Christian, a time here in the world where you are to live as a Christian. And the exhortation that God would have you is that you would live in fear. And the exhortation, the command, would not be needed if there was not much that was trying to drive the fear of the Lord out of you. You see, these two things go together. A heavenly-minded life that yearns for and looks unto that world to come and the fear of the Lord. Exactly in proportion to which you become comfortable with this fallen and sin-stained world, exactly to the extent you try to make this your heaven, precisely to that extent you will find yourself not living before the fear of God, but before the fear of man. These two things must go together. We, we need congregation to so fix our mind upon heavenly realities, eternal realities, because everything in our sinful flesh would desire to drive those things away and fill our life with so much clutter, so much frivolity, so much pointless things that are going to fade away. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For, the for these are the things that are in the world, the lusts of the eyes, the pride of life. And these things are perishing. We need congregation to have that heavenly mindedness that is properly governing everything in our lives. Well, so much for this first thing that we see, the Christian's relationship to the world. But I'd like also to consider the Christian's relationship to the judgment, for this also is prominent in our text. And you see how they are related. Before this new heavens and new earth will come about by the return of Jesus Christ, we know that his coming will also um, bring about that judgment. And so he says, if ye call on the Father who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. And to me it was interesting comparing this text with what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 10 because you find that the same sort of language uh, that is compressed here into one verse is sort of expanded in Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 to 18. And um, I think it's, it's important as we come to see what is this fear of the Lord and how is it that it comes to take shape in our lives that we take a look at that, if not an explicit reference in, in Deuteronomy chapter, from Deuteronomy chapter 10, then at the very least a, a cl close a relationship of the, the content here. So in Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, you have Moses speaking to the children of Israel right before they're about to enter into the promised land. And Moses giving that great sermon, which is really contained in the whole book of Deuteronomy, says in Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear 
the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways and to love him and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes which I command thee this day for thy good. Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, the earth also with all that therein is. Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all people as it is this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow, and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. Now these stirring words, they give a very uh, good definition to the fear of God. It is one that is occupied with the glory and the majesty and the perfection of God. And it is a a fear that directs us to closely attend to the Lord's law of love. You see, whether you look at the old covenant under Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, and David, and so on, or whether you look under the new covenant, inaugurated by Christ and the apostles and all Christians which have followed after them. There is this unifying principle in both, that where the Lord has brought his grace into our hearts, we must depart from evil and attend unto God's laws and commandments, not as a means of attaining life or of earning salvation, but as a rule of gratitude and love. This is the principle. If you read this book of Deuteronomy, that this people redeemed by God and brought into this promised land, they are to consecrate everything that they are and everything they have unto the life lived to the glory of God. That is what it is all about. And Bound up with that adherence is a true proper fear, a true awareness that the one whom we serve is not only the creator of all things, not only the one with all power and might, but he is a righteous judge. So it's proper that this section speaks about God as he, verse 18, that doth execute the judgment of of the fatherless and widow, and loveth the stranger, and giving him food and raiment. So the temptation, obviously, is for the powerful and the rich to not give proper regard to the well-being of their neighbors. Of course, today we believe in socialism here in Canada, and so you have a state that takes upon itself the role of providing for society. But according to God's law, it was more to be done through the heart, more to be done through generosity and kindness, voluntarily caring for those in need, and in particular not depriving those who are vulnerable, the fatherless and the widow, 
and understanding that God cares for them and provides for them. And so where the judgment of the fatherless and widow, the ideas of the one who oppresses them, the one who does not care for them while the Lord takes note of that. And certainly if you would uh, recall what we read in that whole section, how it was that the Lord said, if it is the case that you're going to keep my law, then as you go into the land, you're going to experience blessing and favor, gracious provisions bestowed unto you in regard for your obedience. But likewise, if you read that section that we read or you read other sections, disobedience brings chastisement, brings punishment, brings the disfavor of God. And that principle, of course, plays out in this life. We see the judgment of God in visiting both reward and blessing upon those who serve him and punishment for those who disobey him, but never perfectly in this life. Never do we see that exercised in perfection where there is a perfect justice visited for every sin and transgression and reward given for those who do well. And so the horizon must go higher, must go further and consider that great and terrible day where God will judge the hearts of men. And so you have this principle of God's judgment as a motivation for fear, but it's especially the final judgment that is in view. Obviously, now back here in First Peter, uh, in verse 13, it did speak of um, the revelation of Jesus Christ, so his return when he will be revealed in great power and glory. And now, having gone down to verse 17, you see how he returns to that. If he call on the Father who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work. So that return of Jesus Christ will be the judgment of God the Father. And at this point, you may be asking yourself, well, isn't there a place, in fact, where Jesus spoke about this and said that it would be he and not the Father who would be the final judge? Well, indeed there is. And if you look at John chapter 5, verses 21 to 23, Jesus is contending with the Pharisees, and this is what he says in John chapter 5, verse 21. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, says Jesus, the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father, which hath sent him. And then down in John 5, verse 25, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. 
So which is it? Uh, Peter says it's the Father who will judge every man according to its work. And Jesus says that the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment to the Son. And I like Dr. John Gill's way of reconciling these two things. He says in his commentary on our verse here, Though the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment to the Son, yet he will judge everyone by that man Christ, whom he has ordained to be the judge of quick and dead. Before his judgment seat all must stand where they will be impartially and without respect of persons tried. No accounts will be had of what nation or place they are, whether Jew or Gentile, or of this or the other country, unless to aggravate or lessen their condemnation. So you have here an easy way of reconciling it. God the Father will judge, but he will judge through his Son. The final judgment will be indeed that which exalts Christ as the judge of all, but he will do so as the representative of God the Father. And mark that well. He says, without respect of persons. The idea there is not that there is no respect in the way we think about it, but no. The idea here is that there's no partiality. There's no playing favorites. It's very different with the likes of you and I. We can show favoritism. We can deny someone what they rightly deserve because of some uh, prejudice that we have against them. Likewise, we can uh, go the other way, and we can give someone too much, uh, too much excuses because we simply like them the, the, the way they are. We have some kind of relationship with them. And you see various forms of prejudice and bias that take this form. But God is perfectly just, and he has a perfect standard whereby he will judge everyone. Everyone will be judged, either judged as they are in themselves, strictly according to the law, whether they have rendered perfect obedience unto God, or they will be judged as they are in Christ, according to how Christ has discharged all of our duties on our behalf and fulfilled perfect righteousness on our behalf. But for everyone, there will be a righteous judgment, and that without partiality. What a great motivation for the fear of God. And really, I have no, think there is no substitute for him. One of the things that uh, Peter will write about in his uh, second epistle is how in the last days, he speaks about that in chapter 3, verse 3, there in the last days shall be scoffers walking after their own lusts, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. That's the world we live in. Scoffers. They scoff at God. They scoff at eternity. Sometimes even in, the, even in the visible church, there is not that soberness. There is not that right regard for the eternal world to come because they've never once been faced with this fact that the judgment is real. It is coming. 
As one man said, it is an appointment that you will not miss. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad. And what congregation would you like God to find there when you do arrive? Indeed, you, I trust, believer, you know that you, in your own strength, could not stand before the searching eye of his judgment. And you know that you all, and everything falls short of the glory of God. But you also know this, that as you strive for greater holiness, as you strive for a record on that judgment day, whereby you'll be able to say that by God's grace you strove with your might to keep a conscience void of offense, you know that you will be one who will be fit to stand on that day. You will be assured in this life that you are fit to stand on that day if today you are preparing rightly. If today you are seeking to discipline your thoughts and words and actions in every respect in conformity to the Lord's law, to the Lord's law of love, and on that great day, you will hear the words, Well done, my good and faithful servant, despite all the imperfections that may yet exist. So there's this as well. There is the Christian's relationship to the world and the Christian's relationship to the judgment. Now in the third and last place, I'd like to open up uh, this theme in the text, which is the Christian's relationship to God. And this is obviously gets directly to the heart of what we are speaking about here. But if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. If ye call on the Father. Now, in our homeschool co-op, we're going through the book of Genesis and it's an amazing opportunity because many of those um, kids who are coming, it's really the only exposure they have to the Bible. Some of the parents don't have any understanding of the Bible. So we're working through the book of Genesis together as I, I go through that book. And recently I was, had occasion in going through that series to look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, where you have that line of Seth at the very dawn of humanity after the fall of sin you have Cain killing his brother Abel. And then to replace um, Abel, you have God raising up a godly seed through the line of Seth. And, and from Seth, you have in Genesis 4, verse 26, that wonderful phrase, then men began, sorry, then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. And really what that is about is not merely prayer, although that's the first meaning of that. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you are praying to the Lord. But really what's, what's being talked about here is a whole life of invoking the name of the Lord, of seeking his blessing, of seeking his honor, of seeking his praise. Certainly through gathering together in congregations for worship that is involved and, and that uh, instituted worship which the Lord commands. But along with that, a whole life permeated with the glory of God that puts God first. There you have that 
beginning of the church, at the very dawn of history. And this phrase, to call upon the Lord, it's often spoken of in the prophets as particularly characterizing the worship and the spiritual life that Christ will bring unto his new covenant church. The famous prophecy of Joel in chapter 2, verse 32, often referred to in the New Testament. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered, or as the New Testament often quotes it, shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Or Zechariah 3, verse 9. For then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve with one consent. It's a great thing to call upon the name of the Lord, to have a God whom you may pray to, to have a life in which you live under the sight of the living God. But how much greater and how much sweeter do we have what's in our verse? If ye call on the Father. Call on the Father. Yes, not a father who is not also your Lord. Indeed, he is your Lord. Not a father who is not also your judge, for he is your judge. But where you call upon him as your father, there is the most tender of embraces. There is the most close of relationships. God calls us his own sons and daughters, for he has brought us into his family of grace and love through the salvation of Jesus Christ. And so we may obey that call of Christ, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. To call upon our Father. That is a very precious thing. For many of us, maybe that was one of the first Bible verses we memorized. Memorizing the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven. And when we first hear that prayer, perhaps we have so little understanding for what that really means, the riches of that. But then as you, by God's grace, enter into that true Christian life and you begin to see the kind of turmoil, the kind of pain and suffering which is involved, how precious is it to you, Christian, that no matter where you journey in your pilgrimage, there is only one step away from home. And that is into the loving arms of your father who is ever willing and ready and desiring to receive you as you call upon him for your daily cares and worries. A God who hears and answers prayer as a loving father. If we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more shall our loving father give the Holy Spirit to them who ask, Jesus said. However much fathers may love their children, the love of God the Father for his chosen people in Jesus Christ, it surpasses all understanding. And this congregation is essential to know. It may be the case that you yearn for that fear of the Lord 
And so you hear about what it is to be a pilgrim yearning for eternity. You hear about what it is to be ready for the judgment. But let me tell you this. If that is all that you take away, you will never have the true fear of the Lord. I love Psalm chapter 30, 30, or rather Psalm 130, where it especially speaks of the grace of God that brings the fear of God. There he says in Psalm 130, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. If you contemplate just the holiness and the judgment of God, then indeed there will be a kind of terror that might grip you for a while, but no man can long live in that state, and so you will become hard and bitter against this God. But if you would look upon the Lord Jesus Christ as the embodiment of the Father's love, considering his crucifixion and death in your place, considering his life-giving power that he bestows through his Holy Spirit, and if you would come unto him and rest in his blessed promises of the gospel, then you would come to know this, that it is the forgiveness of God, the forgiveness of for your sins, really understanding the cost that was paid for you it is that which really brings the true fear and reverence for God. For there you come to regard his word unto you, not merely as a judge and Lord, but as a loving father and more precious than life itself. And anything would be worth sparing your father, Christian, the dishonor of disobeying him. And so it is that we have here a bit of a, of a window into the Christian's life of fear, the God-fearing pilgrim. I yearn to see more of this in my own life. I pray to God that more and more I would come to exemplify these characteristics here. Let us congregation on our earthly pilgrimage together be stirring one another up to seek these things from the Lord's hand. That we all may that we may all find our way home at.